Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Brian Bella. I'm Joanne Freeman. I'm Nathan Connolly. If you're new to the podcast, we're all historians, and each week we explore the history of one topic that's been in the news. I want to start today in the Lone Star State. It's the 1850s, and Texas is going through some pretty big changes. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848 had ended the Mexican-American War. The deal gave the United States what is today the southwest region of the country. But Texas is already a state by the time the Mexican-American War rolls around. So what does the Treaty of Hidalgo mean for Texas? Well, it gives Hispanics in the area the option to naturalize. By signing this treaty, Mexicans living in Texas were able to declare themselves U.S. citizens. So all of a sudden, there are a bunch of Mexicans and Texans who are now American. But the U.S. has just finished a bloody war with Mexico, so things were still pretty tense in states like Texas. This tension comes to a head with the Cart War in 1857. It's a series of attacks on cart men traveling around San Antonio. I'm sorry, did you say cart men? Is, is that some kind of a job description? Cart men, wagoners, teamsters. They had a couple of different titles. They transported goods on carts around San Antonio. And in the 1850s, Hispanics pretty much had a monopoly on that industry. And the white Americans, well, they weren't happy about that. They terrorized them, but like all of us, when we do something we know is wrong, they also rationalize it. And their rationalization is, these people are not Americans. That's historian Larry Knight. He's researched the cart war and Texas history in the mid-1800s. Well, according to the people of Carzangolia County, these cartmen who have been going through their counties for years and years and years are thieves. Uh, when they go by, it's sort of like the idea of gypsies in Europe. The gypsies come by and your property is missing. Now, there doesn't seem to be any proof of that. So there is this old idea that they're thieves, but, but I, it's mostly racism. The cart war gets some attention after a few attacks. But the public really takes notice after a man named Antonio Delgado is killed. Delgado is, is one of the few cartmen murdered in the cart wars. Now, his killing was not focused. I mean, they didn't ride into camp to kill him. The men who killed him probably didn't even know who he was. But he had fought in that Battle of Medina in 1813 and then fled from San Antonio because the Spanish were coming in and the Spanish occupation was horrendous. So, but Delgado and his brother escaped to New Orleans where he ends up in time to fight on the side of the Americans under General Andrew Jackson at the Battle of New Orleans. And then in 1830s, in the 1830s, 1835 particularly, he is a dispatch uh, carrier for the Texas Army so he's fought for liberty in some way or other on three different occasions, and uh, he's killed. And, and there's, there's a write-up in the uh, State Gazette published in Austin, uh, but it's written in San Antonio, and it says that, uh, what a deplorable catastrophe that a man, man who throughout his life. life had rendered such valuable aid to the cause of liberty 
should have fallen basely murdered by the hands of a dastardly set of assassins who are a disgrace to the American name. And in, in that last part, they're playing on the fact that the people who killed Delgado considered he was, he was a Mexican, he wasn't an American, and therefore killing him was no big deal. And so the writer of this is saying he was an American. Because what could be a more succinct definition of American than someone who, who loves liberty enough to fight for it? So even though he fought for the U.S., his attackers killed him because they didn't consider him a quote-unquote American. Right. And even though he was Hispanic, he was still an American citizen. Delgado would have either declared for citizenship or he would have simply, after one year of not declaring, would have become a citizen. That, that wasn't enough for the people who killed him, obviously. So it sounds like the story of Antonio Delgado and the cart war in Texas is an example of, okay, you may be a U.S. citizen and you may have fought in some wars, but that doesn't count for everything. That's right. Knight says ideas of citizenship were changing constantly in Texas during this time period, and it was closely tied to culture, not necessarily documentation. The definition of American changes between 1848 and 1861, and either, in other words, between the end of the war with Mexico and the beginning of the Civil War, because in the early 1850s, many things that are Mexican are outlawed in San Antonio. There's a Sabbath law. If you go to church, you don't go to the, uh, you don't go out after that and, and, and go dancing or gambling or cockfighting or, or horseback riding. So things that were Mexican were outlawed. You can be an American, but you've got to change your culture. You've got to change the things that you do. Then after the Cart War, we're going to shift as, as the nation begins to pull apart. There is this idea that you have to be a believer in slavery and the Southern way of life to be an American. This, this target of what's an American is, is both a mobile target, especially in San Antonio, but it's also one of the questions is, who gets to decide this? Who gets to make this decision? And I think we have the same thing today. I mean, we have so many definitions. I, I, I think if you ask 30 people to define what an American citizen is, you'd probably get 31 answers. On today's show, we're going to explore the topic of citizenship. What does it mean to be an American citizen? And like Knight says, who gets to decide? We'll discuss the Chinese Exclusion Act that barred Chinese living in the United States from gaining American citizenship. We'll also talk about a time when women had to give up their nationality because they got married. And later, we'll learn how World War I was a pivotal moment in the struggle for African-American equal rights. We just heard a story about Mexican-Americans who, by law, were U.S. citizens, but who didn't enjoy the same civil liberties as others. But what if you were living in the U.S. and weren't even allowed to become a citizen? What if you had to endure discrimination because of your ethnicity and were denied a chance for naturalization? That was the struggle of Chinese people living in the United States for decades. The Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 was one of the first major laws regulating immigration in the United States. It barred immigration for Chinese laborers and declared the Chinese ineligible for citizenship. The statute was set to last only 10 years, but it was renewed several times in the late 19th and early 20th century, 
and each iteration amped up the law's provisions. For example, in 1892, the Geary Act mandated that all Chinese living in the United States have a certificate of residence that they carry with them at all times. This was just one instance of the American government basically telling the Chinese, you are not wanted. There was a lot of fear. Uh, a lot of it was very rational. But I would say the, the labor was certainly... Um, one aspect, one very, very important aspect, but a lot of it was also this concern about overall, do, are the Chinese fit or unfit as a race to be included in the American nation? Mary Liu is a professor of American studies and history at Yale University. She's researched the effects of the Chinese Exclusion Act and why it was enacted in the first place. So one of the larger contextual ways to think about this is that this is also the period um, after the Civil War um, Reconstruction. And already the, the nation has wrestled with this question of what to do with African Americans in terms of citizenship. So having Chinese, Ameri Chinese suddenly show up in the United States in this period in larger and larger numbers um, really alarmed uh, politicians in terms of you know, thinking through, here we have yet another group that we now have to decide, are they fit or unfit um, for inclusion? And even before the Chinese Exclusion Act is passed in 1882, Chinese were deemed as racially unfit because of the uh, provisions in the 1790 rule of naturalization that states very clearly, in order to be eligible to be a citizen of the United States, one had to be a so-called free white person. And so there was a case right before 1882, the case of Inre Ayup in 1878, where Ayup tried to um, gain citizenship as um, uh, by claiming that he should qualify under the free white persons clause. So it really challenged this question of, you know, what to categorize the Chinese. And you can see in that decision, uh, Ayup doesn't win. He doesn't get uh, citizenship. And free white persons is understood as not um, including the Chinese. Other court cases challenged the exclusion laws and helped shape the conversation around who gets to be an American citizen. Most famously, the case of Tape versus Hurley in 1885. It tells the story of Mary and Joseph Tape, who came to San Francisco from China before the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act. We believe they came in the 1860s. They were married in 1875. And what's really interesting about them is that Mary was raised by missionaries. Um, she really didn't associate with many Chinese people from what we know of her. Um, whereas Joseph uh, Tape came from China and, and definitely spoke Cantonese. And so he blended more with the, uh, the Chinese population in San Francisco of that period. So we know about the Tape family because they tried to enroll their daughter Mamie Tape in the all-white Spring Valley School. So at the time, there was actually already a Chinese school that um, Chinese children were told they had to go to. But because Joseph and Mary Tape were already what we would consider um, fully acculturated Chinese Americans in this period, they did not want to enroll their children into the Chinese school and instead chose to put them in the all-white Spring Valley School. However, the school refused um, to let Mamie come to the school, and so the Tapes sued the school district and won. Um, and the case basically guaranteed the rights of children born to Chinese parents to a public education. 
However, um, the San Francisco school district decided to set up a separate Chinese primary school and, in, you know, and really push um, for the children to go there. So basically, you're seeing what we come to know as separate but equal that happens um, later with the 1896 Plessy v. Ferguson case. But you're seeing this being played out here in 1885 in San Francisco. So, you know, Mary Tape ends up writing this scathing letter that gets published where she really um, indicts the whole system of, of basically being racist and, and taking it all out on this poor, her daughter, her, her eight-year-old child. And the anger is very, very clear in the letter in terms of her frustrations, her disappointment. Um, and she says, she, you know, she will never, ever, ever send her children to the Chinese school. Never. To the Board of Education. Dear sirs, I see that you are going to make all sorts of excuses to keep my child out of the public schools. Will you please tell me, is it a disgrace to be born a Chinese? Didn't God make us all? What right have you to bar my child out of the school because she is of Chinese descent? There is no other worldly reason that you could keep her out except that. You have expended a lot of the public money foolishly, all because of one poor little child. I will let the world see, sir, what justice there is when it is governed by the race of prejudiced men. So the letter is is very well known, and, and this is probably the reason why we know the Tate family the most. So you can see the anger and frustration, um, especially for Chinese who I think came prior to the exclusion era and then suddenly see all these doors closing, not just for themselves, but for their children. And then in the end, where does Mamie end up going to school? Well, um, despite Mary saying, never, never, never will I send my daughter to your school, Five days later, uh, the school actually opens, the Chinese school opens, and um, Frank and Mamie are actually two of the first students to enroll in the school. Hmm. And it's a pretty profoundly sad moment um, because you can certainly imagine for the tapes who had, I'm sure, high hopes for where their children would go, given the opportunities that they themselves had, that is, uh, Joseph and Mary, I think mm -hmm. they probably imagined anything was possible for their American-born children. And instead, they felt the only way to give their children any kind of education was then to send them to the Chinese school. Wow. Wow. So that's that's obvious, <laughs> obvious exclusion of one kind, but I'm, I'm assuming particularly in the case of the Chinese laborers, um, it, it, I would assume almost that there had to be some moments really that their safety was threatened. Yeah, so this is this is one of the things that um, we definitely spend a lot of time talking about in the field of Asian American history is the the enormous amount of anti-Asian violence that that occurred throughout this period in the 19th century and early 20th century. And that kind of violence goes you know well before the Chinese Exclusion Acts are even passed. So uh, in many places in California, there's many um, examples of, of just outright clashes and, um, and fights that break out between Chinese workers and, and white workers. I think you go from that where you're talking about individual workers or, or groups of workers to then seeing the state, um, in this case the federal government, as then clearly not only not offering protection, but then is the agent of causing uh, harm. Probably the most um, 
well-known example of that is in Rock Springs, Wyoming, when, when Chinese miners um, are brutally attacked um, by white miners um, in, in this case where, um, again, Chinese end up um, losing their lives. They are um, injured. They, they lose their belongings, their homes, um, and eventually are expelled um, from the area of Rock Sp- Springs. And I think what happens is that um, ordinary folks begin to think that it's, it's that kind of violence may actually be okay um, because the state has already deemed the Chinese as unacceptable and not a part of us and will never be a part of the American polity. So, so we've talked about the, the Tate versus Hurley case uh, as one case that's really kind of challenging or testing the boundaries of the Chinese Exclusion Act, but I understand there's also United States versus Wong Kim Ark as well that was challenging the provision. So tell us a little bit about that case. Sure. So the U.S. versus Wong Kim Ark case occurred in um, the late 1890s, and it was decided by the Supreme Court in 1898. And basically, it's the, the case that we have that finally settles that anyone born in the United States um, receives American citizenship. And it's until then, it's actually somewhat unclear, even though in the 14th Amendment, um, it's very clear. It says, you know, all persons born or naturalized um, in the United States are subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. So I think the question then for for Chinese, because of the Exclusion Act, there was the question of, well, what do you do with a group of people who've been deemed undesirable and not uh, allowed to immigrate to the United States? Do do they have the rights of citizenship? And so the story is, is that Wong Kim Ark was born in San Francisco in 1873. Both of his parents were Chinese. Uh, the family took a trip to China, and on return to the United States in a year later, in 1895, they were refused landing. And the customs officials at the time um, refused landing on the grounds that he was of Chinese descent and thereby denied the right to enter the United States. Um, but of course, he said, well, but I was born in the United States. I am a citizen. So Wong Kim Ark appealed his case, and it traveled all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and by the vote of six to two, the Supreme Court justices ruled in favor of Wong Kim Ark's petition. And again, that was based on the 14th Amendment that um, really protected the rights of people born in the United States um, and, and their claims to citizenship. So that's the case that, um, that was indeed a victory that was very much celebrated by Chinese Americans that showed that... Uh, if there, if one's children was born in the United States, one can claim citizenship, even though the parents, the immigrant generation, would never be able to make that claim under exclusion. Hmm. Well, I, I have to confess that as we are sort of unraveling the story, I hear a victory and I think, yay, there's <laughs> <laughs> an actual victory. <laughs> right. There is an actual victory. Yes. I mean, it's very difficult because one can argue, and historians have certainly argued this, while, yes, uh, Chinese Americans during the exclusion era could claim citizenship, um, one had to ask, was this a full citizenship mm. was, or was this a second-class citizenship? And that is very difficult to answer because mm. 
the, the shadow of exclusion was indeed very, very long, and it certainly didn't protect them from race-based exclusion, from residential segregation, for example. Um, Wong Kim Ark's descendants were trying to, if they stayed in the state of California and tried to purchase a home, let's say, in an all-white neighborhood that happened to have restrictive covenants, they would not have been eligible, despite the fact that they are clearly American citizens. So these are things that are very difficult. So, so yes, 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 I would certainly say, yay, there was a victory. <laughs> but, but. <laughs> but unfortunately, we yeah. have to sort of take another step and, and think about, well, what kind of victory is right. this? Because right. it, it doesn't fully guarantee um, the kind of um, the full citizenship that one would want. What do you think that these kinds of discriminatory laws that we're talking about here, the Chinese Exclusion Act and others, um, what do you think they really say about American concepts of citizenship as they're being defined and redefined and broadened and shrunk and everything else that's going on throughout American history? I mean, certainly what is so interesting is you have something as basic as the 1790 rule of naturalization that begins with three very clear words, free white persons. Mm -hmm. And while that might seem very evident and, you know, that there's not much to debate there, it certainly ends up becoming something that's debated again and again. And what that tells me is that the notions of race and citizenship have to be made and remade, have to be always constructed and supported. They don't work on their own. And what that also tells me is that generations can in American history have challenged those, those notions, um, whether they've succeeded or not, you know, that, that's one thing, but certainly I think it shows us just how unstable, um, that category of white privilege and citizenship, um, has been that other, in other words, if it was stable and fixed and finite, it would have just been the one, um, rule of naturalization in 1790 and we, were, we would be done now. Right. Um, but thankfully, that is not the case. <laughs> yes. Instead, we, we have seen the possibilities and the ways in which the law can be both um, a means of empowerment and social change as much as it can be um, a means of real profound restriction. Mary Lou is professor of history and American studies at Yale University. Today, whether wives take their husbands' names can make for a tense prenuptial conversation. But what if by getting married, you didn't just lose your maiden name, you sacrificed your nationality too? Well, that definitely raises the stakes for wedding vows. Why would somebody lose their citizenship just because they tie the knot? Well, in 1907, Congress passed something called the Expatriation Act. It declared that if any American-born woman married a foreign man, well, sorry, but that means you're no longer a U.S. citizen. Instead, you take on your husband's nationality. Well, hold on a second there, Nathan. What about the men? What if they marry somebody who isn't an American? I hate to say it, but they were in the clear. No American man, rich or poor, whatever his race or ethnicity, lost his citizenship by virtue of his marriage. And yet... Hundreds, thousands of American women did 
That's historian Linda Kerber. She's been researching coverture in the U.S. for decades. Coverture is laws and customs that transfer certain rights of women to their husbands. She says American women were made to take their husband's nationality before the Expatriation Act. It just wasn't a statute until 1907. Okay, so if it was already happening in the United States, why set it in stone with this law? Kerber says one of the influences behind the Expatriation Act was this trend happening among the elite in the late 19th century. In the upper classes of society, you start to get the phenomenon of titled noblemen in France, in Germany, in the UK, who had little in the way of financial resources, thinking, hmm, maybe I can persuade an American heiress to marry me. One of the most prominent heiresses at the time was Consuelo Vanderbilt. Through what was essentially an arranged marriage, Consuelo married the Duke of Marlborough and went off to live in a big English estate. It made an enormous splash, and all over the country and from many people in Congress came the angry response, couldn't she find an American to marry? What, you know, <laughs> what's going on here? We are insulted. There was, to be sure, a story abroad to the effect that Miss Consuelo would wed young John W. McKay, Jr., son of the great California millionaire. And there is no denying that he was, for a time, very attentive. But he appears to have been given the mitten, or perhaps we should say of such wealthy people, the kid glove. Nebraska State Journal, September 15th, 1895. And out of that insult came the Citizenship Act of 1907, which provided for, firmly by statute, so no longer custom, that when an American citizen woman married a foreign man, she lost her citizenship. Once this was put on the books in 1907, more women started to challenge it and fight for their citizenship. I talked with Kerber about a woman named Ethel McKenzie and the ripples of the Expatriation Act. Ethel McKenzie... Uh, had been very active in the women's suffrage movement in California. And when women in California got the right to vote in 1913, that is well before the federal statute of 1920, uh, Ethel McKenzie was delighted, and she went down to register as quickly as she could. But she was told when she appeared to register for the vote uh, that she was not eligible because she had married a foreigner. But Ethel McKenzie was having none of it. Uh, as far as we know, she believed that she had worked hard for this right, and she didn't see why she should have to beg for it. So she appealed the ruling of the board, and her case made its way uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1917, so we are right at the cusp of the U.S. entry into World War I. And in that ruling, the Supreme Court said marriage to a foreigner is virtual expatriation. Uh, you know, and in effect, they're saying, you knew what you were doing, right? and uh, you have been essentially taking yourself out of the American community. Wow. 
So World War I was an event that I'm sure a lot of people decided they were going to pay attention to, and it had an impact on this particular instance. You have German men registering as enemy aliens. What impact did that have on the women who were married to these men? They, too, had to register as enemy aliens, and hundreds of them did. We don't have testimony uh, from them as far as I've been able to find, but there are reports uh, in newspapers of, you know, something like 120 women register as enemy aliens because of their marriage. So in 1920, women around the country gain the right to vote, and they start lobbying to change the law. Tell us about the spark behind the Cable Act of 1922. If you look at women's magazines during 1920, you see editorials. Ladies, use your right to vote. Use it to protect the integrity of married women's citizenship. There is a moment in the early 1920s, when members of, of legislatures all over the country feared what the woman's vote might add up to, they knew what their constituency had been. It was all men. Uh, now they had this unknown constituency. wasn't clear what these women would do, and they want very much to accommodate it. And the Cable Act is part of this accommodation. So, so tell us a little bit more about the Cable Act's exceptions and how it affected, say, a woman like Mary Kay Das. Cable Act provided that an American woman who married a f- foreign man who was himself eligible for naturalization could keep her American citizenship. But at that time, we're talking 1922, Going back to the uh, Chinese Exclusion Acts in the 1880s, those people were not eligible for naturalization. So if an American woman married an Asian man, she was not eligible to keep her citizenship. And Mary Kay Das, who had been born in the United States, Uh, lost her citizenship because she was married to a man from South India uh, who himself was no longer eligible for naturalization. And in The Nation, uh, she wrote a powerful, powerful, heartfelt, uh, I don't know, cry manifesto in which she says, I am a woman without a country. I'm a woman without a country, Uh, which she was. I am an American-born woman. My ancestors came from England to America in the year 1700. By the existing double standard of the American government, I am not only rendered alien, but a stateless alien. According to the Cable Act, an American woman marrying an alien ineligible to citizenship loses her American citizenship. An American man may marry a Japanese, Chinese, Hindu, any woman he pleases. To do so does not lose him his citizenship. But an American woman is penalized when she exercises this right granted the American man. I feel that an American woman should not be penalized for marrying the person she loves. Marriage is not a matter of convenience. 
It has a spiritual bearing, and none has the right to dictate the inner life of an individual. And when she asked how she could fix this, she was told, well, uh, you could divorce him, or uh, you could go find another country which would take you in. How would you characterize the legacies of the Expatriation Act? What might be its relevance for today? Oh, I think there is a lot of relevance. When contemporary people, feminists, friends, acquaintances say to me, why is it so hard now? Didn't we have in the decision of the Supreme Court in Frontiero versus Richardson back in 1974, didn't we have a decision that said women are entitled to the equal protection of the laws that is promised in the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution? Can't we count on the 14th Amendment? I have to say, no, we have not been able to count on it. In, ever since 1973, specific issue by specific issue, we have had to make claims to what counts as equal protection. Is it okay to ex- exclude women from medical schools? Well, no, it's not, but that had to be litigated. And I think all of this goes back to the deep distrust of women's ability to manage their own concerns, whether they be financial or the moral and ethical choices she makes as invented in the woman can't vote. And so when we see distrust of women's ability to make claims about her own body in the attacks on reproductive rights reforms of the 1970s, in which we see skepticism of women's testimony on sexual assault, Uh, we see now, I believe, the continuing percolation of old assumptions about women's moral trustworthiness that have infused American law and custom and practice from the revolution to the present moment. Linda Kerber is the May Broadbeck Professor of the Liberal Arts and Professor of History Emerita at the University of Iowa. She's also the author of the book, No Constitutional Right to be Ladies, Women and the Obligations of Citizenship. When we think about the struggle for African-American civil rights, a lot of us cast our minds back to the post-World War II era in the 1950s and 60s. But a lot of the activist organizations from that period had their roots in the years following World War I. African-Americans participated in that earlier war in a big way. Back in 2014, we found out about one of them, a woman named Katherine Johnson. She was one of many thousands of black Americans whose experiences in World War I profoundly affected their views of the nation and left them more determined than ever to fight for justice. Katherine Johnson was born to a middle-class family in Ohio in the years following the Civil War. When she was in her 20s, she moved down south, 
first to teach in an all-black college in North Carolina, and then in Arkansas. It was right around this time that Jim Crow laws and the violence that enforced those laws were tightening their grip on the South. In 1906, her Arkansas school was attacked and nearly burned down by white rioters. That experience taught her a lot. Being upright and being right is never going to be enough. This is historian Catherine Lentz Smith, who profiles Johnson in her book, Freedom Struggles. She wants to do more. She wants to be more forceful. She wants to be out in the world making a difference. And teaching doesn't allow her to do that. So Johnson finds a place in the nascent black freedom struggle, becoming a field organizer for the newly formed NAACP. And with the advent of World War I, Johnson and a lot of these African-American activists see an opportunity. When the U.S. finally entered the First World War, called in this beautiful, flowery, inspiring language by Woodrow Wilson to a war for democracy, to a war that would be about self-determination and all sorts of things that African-Americans living in Woodrow Wilson's United States didn't have but hoped to have. Many of them, Johnson among them, saw the war as an opportunity to show the rest of America that they were capable of carrying the uniform, showing valor, doing all of the things that a citizen would do. Nearly 400,000 African Americans served in the war, half of them serving abroad. Most worked as laborers. There were also some black civilians who joined the war effort as volunteers. Johnson was one of them. And as a volunteer for the YMCA in France, she had a front-row view of a society where Black people were treated very differently than they were back home. Johnson herself talks about sitting on public transportation and seeing a white woman give up her seat for a French colonial African soldier and marveling that that would never, ever happen in the United States. But Jim Crow followed African-American soldiers to France in both official and unofficial ways. Camps were segregated, and black soldiers were disciplined for talking to white French women. They were given the worst jobs on bases, and they were thrown in the brig when they balked at that work. Fights between white and black soldiers were frequent. As the peace treaty was signed in Paris, black soldiers and civilians disillusioned by the unmet promises of the war and the unchanged segregation in the United States turned with a new energy to political organizing. NAACP chapters proliferated. Membership spiked in black nationalist organizations like Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association. African Americans realized that they had to make their demands and defend themselves rather than to prove themselves and show themselves worthy. And that's a very different strategy. Well, it's a mediumly different strategy than the one that they had been pursuing before. And was it that no proof could be stronger than the willingness to die for their country yet? it seemed to have no impact whatsoever. Not only did it have no impact, it incited defenders of white supremacy. It provoked them into greater repression and violence. 
That violence peaked in a six-month period in 1919 that came to be known as the Red Summer. Beginning in April of 1919, about 30 major riots rocked towns and major cities, including Washington, D.C. and Chicago. Hundreds of people were killed and thousands injured as white rioters set upon black neighborhoods. Lynching spiked in the South with several black soldiers in uniform among the victims. But what you see in Chicago, what you see in D.C., what you see um, elsewhere are veterans bringing their military training to bear and really doing organized defense of their neighborhoods to keep white rampagers out. So in Chicago, for example, veterans go to the armory of the 8th Illinois National Guard, gather arms, and then station themselves at strategic corners of their neighborhoods to defend from incursions. Despite violent resistance, black political organizations continued to grow throughout the 20s and 30s. Katherine Johnson continued in a lot of these circles. She stayed active with the NAACP and Garvey's group, and she worked in settlement houses in Chicago, helping the waves of black families who had moved there during and right after the war. In the 30s, she joined solidarity movements with freedom struggles in Africa. In a lot of ways, her work was typical for a black activist of this era. Where she diverges is in... 1940, when she decides to run for Congress, which not many black women opted to do in 1940, (laughs) right? And she knew she wasn't going to win, but she has a critique and she wants a platform. And interestingly enough, she's trying to keep the U.S. out of World War II because she does not believe that the war will serve either the purpose of the African-American freedom struggle or the well-being of the nation. That's Adrienne Lund-Smith. She's a historian at Duke University and the author of Freedom Struggles, African Americans and World War I. Boy, Joanne, Nathan, we've heard about some pretty mighty struggles over who can be a citizen, who can stay a citizen. But my question for you is, well, what does citizenship mean over the centuries in the United States? Well, I can certainly plunge in with those early centuries. <laughs> you know, it's it's striking. I think we think about citizenship as a... 19th and 20th century issue, but the fact of the matter is, since the dawning of the Republic, we've been trying to figure out what being a citizen means, because before there was a United States, we were subjects. Mm -hmm. American colonists were not citizens, they were subjects. And being a subject, being subjected to someone else's power, it's not a matter of being a part of a community, it's part of being governed over by a ruler. But the beginning of the Republic, suddenly the question is, we're no longer Subjects were citizens, and what does that mean? So from the beginning of the republic, I mean, there is a gender component and a racial component. So there is a focus on white male citizenship and what it means. The franchise and such things are still at that moment 
linked to being white and male. But what's interesting about that early period is that because a republic was an experimental form of governance in a world of monarchies, people really were thinking about what it meant to be a citizen of a republic. Mm -hmm. And although women didn't have the vote, they were seen as performing really important moral duty as citizens of a republic. They were seen as being the people who are going to educate and raise children to become good, small-R Republican citizens in the future. And one of the things that did was actually make women's education particularly important. So there was a, a sort of unanticipated plus to it in that if women were going to do that kind of service work, that kind of moral work, they had to be educated for it. And so they were part of the process of creating and and promoting good citizenship in the republic from the very beginning. Yeah, I mean, I think the evolution of our notions of citizenship are, are constantly connected to and tethered to real struggles. I mean, you think about Reconstruction and the effort to try to deal with the problem of formerly enslaved persons. And, and there, I mean, just as Joanne pointed to, there were both gendered and racialized expressions of citizenship. I mean, for instance, you know, in light of the fact that women couldn't vote, many of them, you know, exercised influence relative to their husbands and partners and male partners to vote particular ways in elections in the South. So even as disenfranchised, you know, subjects effectively of the U.S. state, many black women had a kind of Republican ideal, a sense of the common good, a sense of being governed for the people and by the people that they tried to articulate by way of singular manhood suffrage. It's one of the amazing stories, actually of the country and the evolution of voting rights. And obviously, when you think about what was mentioned earlier by way of World War I and the kinds of crises that were created and just the, the notion of service as a path to citizenship, that too was embedded in these very real Republican ideals, right? That you're supposed to somehow build your case or make your claims on certain kinds of privileges by virtue of mm -hmm. demonstrating that you're part of this collective and engaged in a large national project. But, you know, this also is, is the kind of thing that waxes and wanes, as we learned, right? I mean, in, in the wake of the frustration of World War I, many people begin to adopt, you know, what we would consider to be liberal or much more individualized understandings of their rights and say, you know what, I'm going to measure my rights not by my ability to fight for my country necessarily or in that expectation, but simply by virtue of what I can purchase at the cash register or by virtue of my ability to actually achieve the franchise in a singular manner, both for me and now post-1920 for my wife who also wishes to vote. Um, and so I think it's really important to recognize that there's always going to be both kind of conventional liberal and conventional Republican elements in how we define our citizenship, even going so far as to to point out that the Black Panther Party and other groups from the 60s in, 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 the, in the wake of this, you know, again, firestorm around citizenship, they're talking about power to the people, almost resuscitating classical early Republic visions of Republicanism, but for, you know, radical purposes. So I think it's really powerful to think through the fact that Americans have demonstrated, you know, a certain nimbleness around being able to articulate visions that were both community-based collectivist base, like classic republicanism, but also thinking about citizenship in very individualized terms. And I want to go back to that bifurcation that both of you talked about uh, between the formal privileges of citizenship and that kind of service that you mm -hmm. talked about. And I think one of the reasons for closing the gap between the two, and I agree with you, Nathan, that this happened uh, largely in the early 20th century, began uh, to close the gap more dramatically, uh, is that women and African-Americans began to say, hey, 
<laughs> we've been doing service all along, dying for our country in its wars, or whether it's being the catalyst and the driving force behind education, behind all kinds of civic mm. groups uh, that really make the republic work. Why is it that some people, mainly white men, get all this bundle of rights without all of that? They get that automatically. And I think that gap between having to prove yourself as a citizen and, well, automatically you're a citizen because you were born white and you were born male, really begins to close. The gap begins to close uh, in the 20th century. To what degree is what you're talking about there? Because there's a political component of citizenship. There's a cultural component of citizenship. There's this sort of service slash moralistic component, which is a little bit of both. To to what degree does the assumption about citizenship change with different assumptions about the state, which I suppose you could say kind of begin in the late 19th century, but really are a 20th century phenomenon? How, how, are, how are people's claims for citizenship being heard in a different kind of a way? Yeah, so I, I think that gap, Joanne, between what is said and what is heard um, gets ex exactly at the cultural practice that's always bound up with citizenship, right? I mean, you know, you have people who are entering into contracts, who are trying to travel internationally, who are trying to, you know, have some kind of voice at the local level or simply traveling to Washington to get certain grievances met. People are in their day-to-day -day lives are going to participate in, in the stuff of citizenship and whether or not we recognize it or the courts, you know, adjudicate as if it is citizenship is, I think, a different matter completely. And so and I think, you know, to your point, there are parallel stories that are related but in, in very real ways are distinct, which is that people are going to try to find ways of making it in the United States specifically by doing all the things that we would call the stuff of citizenship, simply, you know, again, pursuing their happiness. But oftentimes it becomes clear that there are going to be impediments, oftentimes government impediments, that get in the way of that happiness being realized. And, and that, to me, that disconnect between what people try to do in their day-to-day -day lives and what then ultimately becomes the barriers that they face, that's where citizenship is felt, where it derives its meaning, and where we can really clearly look to see what the measure of it is in any given point in time. Well, we've heard in this show that citizenship can be earned, struggled for, granted, but it can also be removed. Mm -hmm. uh, do either mm -hmm. of you feel that we're at a moment in time that the possibility of citizenship being removed is um, particularly acute? Oh, no question. I mean, there's been evidence that the, the current administration is looking into the process of denaturalization, right, taking people mm -hmm. who've been naturalized as American citizens and, and stripping them of that right. Um, you know, that's a, a feature of, you know, again, as we've learned, a history of, you know, expatriation, certainly. But it's also, I think, a very distinctive political project that is rooted in controlling elections and, you know, minimizing certain kinds of demographic transformations that the country is experiencing, particularly along, you know, immigrant lines. Um, so I think this is a, a front and center question and will be for quite some time. I think it also, you know, in, invites us to consider, you know, what are the ways in which we can be far better at protecting people's day-to-day -day lives and imbuing them with the entitlements of citizenship, even if they're not citizens, right? This is so much of what the debate is around legal versus illegal immigration. What do you allow people to do if they don't have citizenship? Can they get a driver's license? Can they open a business? You know, what, what's possible? Um, so I think in, in a lot of ways, the immigration debate 
debate um, and, you know, still the, the gender and sexuality debate are going to drive these questions um, to new and, and sharper areas. But I do think that the the importance of this moment is it's such a reminder of the value and the meaning of citizenship mm-hmm. and the contested nature of citizenship, that that never stops being negotiated and that it should never be something that's taken for granted. That's going to do it for us today. But you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about history. You'll find us at backstoryradio.org or send an email to backstory at virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Backstory Radio. If you enjoyed hearing the segment about African-American rights after World War I from 2014, you'll find thousands more stories in our archive at the Backstory website. Special thanks this week to our voice actors, James Scales and Jolie Milner. And as always, the Johns Hopkins Studio in Baltimore. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. One last thought for today. Um, I'm talking to you from the Yale Broadcast Center, and I just want to offer a word on behalf of Phil Kearney, uh, who worked here alongside me, uh, bringing Backstory to life. Um, He was a wonderful citizen for radio, for podcasting, and for Backstory, and he'll be deeply missed. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities. <laughs>